This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our dedicated books and comics show i'm your host matthew rushing and with me as he is always is dan gunther dan how has it been going for you today uh not too bad matthew a pretty crazy busy day but uh, as usual i'm happy to be sitting down and talking about one of my favorite trek books so Awesome. Yeah, tonight we do have um, something special. We are really, really close to the end of what I like to think of as like season eight of Deep Space Nine. Um, And yeah, Rising Sun definitely just gives us that that last little bit before we go to the grand finale of Unity. So I'm yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. it. I hadn't read it, honestly, since it came out. You know, that's that's one of those things like so many of these books, I only get a chance to really read once because, you know, there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. And it's been really nice to go back and revisit the uh, the Deep Space Nine relaunch series and really, I think, just see them hold up for the most part. I think, you know, that's been a really nice thing. Yeah, Matthew, it's been a lot of fun Uh, before I even came on this show and you guys were doing a a reread of the relaunch I was doing the same thing on my website and they really do hold up they're really excellent which you know I mean these books 10 years old some of them and um, to see that the storylines like the show of Deep Space Nine continue to resonate is really cool and I you know I think on a whole when you're following a show like Deep Space Nine it's um, it's hard not to to if you're writing a good book to to have a book that you feel like is going to last for another 10 20 30 you know some odd years or more just because the themes of deep space nine were so meta they're so big mm-hmm. you know and uh, i think that that has really been passed on with the authors writing deep space nine when you're writing a good one it it resonates with those major themes that they had in the series, which are themes that just kind of continue on and on as we move forward in, in human existence. So, yeah, I just think it's really, really awesome. Um, and it's, it's great to have such quality in the books. You know, it would be really hard to say, oh, we're going to do literary treks, we're going to do this show dedicated to the passion of the books and the comics because we really love them. (laughs) 
but we have to keep apologizing for him all the time, you know, and we just don't have to do that because the authors are really giving us quality work that you can read 10 years later and be like, you know what? Still a great book. Right. It really does say a lot that people are reading and enjoying these books years later, like decades later, as you say. And it really goes to show that the themes of Deep Space Nine and Star Trek as a whole really are timeless. And these authors really do a great job of capturing that. Well, and what's really cool about it as well, Dan, is just the opportunity to... I think a lot of fans are finding the books now, even when they might not have moved to them before, because, you know, they always had what was on screen, you Mm -hmm. know. And and now that there's no Star Trek except for the JJ-verse... Um, on screen there's nothing on tv Um, you know people are kind of hungry for star trek in a lot of ways and i think that the novels um, are really capturing that audience who wants more trek but the only place to really get trek especially the one we knew is in the books and luckily for them you know there's years of amazing books to catch up on and then every year more great books come out like we just talked about last week, Dan. Where is the cover for <laughs> Sacraments of Fire? Where is it? And tonight, we are going to judge Sacraments of Fire by its cover. Well, I think Simon and Schuster were listening, so uh, luckily they have provided that. So, <laughs> Well, Dan, what do you think? I mean, we've got this beautiful cover. It has the brand new Deep Space Nine station along with Alana Gamore's kind of ghostly figure in the background Uh, what do you think of this cover well personally i i love it i like kind of the darkness of it it feels like there's something foreboding Uh, a lot of the station is kind of dark and a bit of shadow i i really like the mood that's kind of being evoked here i i figured that there'd be a picture of the station on the cover uh because we've been getting a lot of ship and space shots lately but the real surprise for me was this um shot of Ileana Gamor in the background kind of hovering over it. I was not expecting that. And it's really cool to see that uh, David R. George is going to be picking up these threads and running with them. I mean, we knew he was with the follow-up Ascendants, but it's really a cool surprise to see it here in Sacraments of Fire as well. Well, and what's also interesting too is just the way the station is placed. Um, you know, it's kind of askew. It has that almost Mpoc Noor kind of look mm-hmm. to it where, you know, nothing's quite right with the cover. And, you know, the first one that we got with the brand new Deep Space Nine had it all looking majestic, these bright colors, um, two starships, you know, there, one in front and, and one at, um, you know, at the top there and and it just it looked very majestic and and like you said this has that kind of almost like mournful feeling to it um, mm-hmm. as you look at this cover and you know sacraments of fire um obviously really alluding to the way that the ascendants view the um the prophets or the siblings and and um you know their their tears of the prophets or their the orbs or whatever you want to call them it yeah it all just has this foreboding nature especially rereading rising sun and seeing the setup for the ascendants uh, and just how evil these people kind of seem to be um yeah it this really it just makes me all the more excited for where david's going to be taking us with this book and with his subsequent works 
Yeah, for sure. Like like you said, the Dutch angle kind of skewed shot of the station. And I never really thought of that. But yeah, there's a lot on this cover that's all kind of contributing to that feeling of unease. And uh, I'm really excited to see where this goes. And as we know, David R. George, you know, doesn't typically deal with light fare. So this will be pretty epic, I think. Well, and it's, you know, it's very exciting because... Um... He did Rough Beasts of Empire, which for a lot of people was a tough book to digest. And then when he followed it up with Plagues of Night and Raise the Dawn, it created this really, really wonderful trilogy and a great story. And I really think that Revelation and Dust and Sacraments of Fire and Ascendance and whatever comes next is going to create this nice series to bring that Deep Space Nine story back to its fullest, you know? Um, Mm. And we've had a lot of Deep Space Nine characters in a lot of different books, um, but the the station itself, and it it just hasn't been the focus, obviously, the way it was when we had a whole Deep Space Nine relaunch series and all of these books in a row, and, you know, we were getting so many a year. And everything's changed, but... You know, then Deep Space Nine had to catch up to where everybody was, and it definitely wasn't the same because, you know, all these characters were kind of off the station, Odo wasn't there, all this stuff, and it slowly feels like everybody, everything's gravitating back towards this station, um, you know, and uh, a lot like... Um, Godfather 3, every time I think I get out, they keep pulling me back in. So apparently Deep Space Nine is a lot like that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, and I mean, Deep Space Nine's always been a nexus for a lot of the big political changes in the Alpha Quadrant and that sort of thing. So it's really nice to see that actual, you know, Deep Space Nine titled series gaining back the prominence that it used to have. It's it's really heartwarming to see that, I don't know, Deep Space Nine, I think in some people's minds is kind of like that ignored sibling series that people don't pay attention to, but it really deserves so much more than that. And I feel like we're getting the love for Deep Space Nine back, which is really great to see. For the novels, it's kind of what set a precedent for what they were going to be like. Mm-hmm. And then that was kind of lost for a little bit. And, and like I you just said, I think it's back. And that's really exciting. Um, I'm really glad that this is the case. So, yeah, great cover. So looking forward to reading what David has for us in this book and his coming works. And so, yeah, this is just fantastic. What a great gift. Well, Dan, it it is a kind of an exciting show. And the reason for that is not because we're going to do anything super fancy or we don't even have an interview tonight, um, but... This is the 100th episode of Literary Treks, which, goodness, um, time really flies when you're having fun. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. I I remember listening to the first episode of this ages ago and thinking, you know, oh my god, there's a podcast for Star Trek novels. I, I can't believe it. This is made for me. And now that it's the 100th episode and I'm actually on the podcast, what? And... It's pretty crazy. I can't believe how how quickly the time has flown and how much fun, well, I've had both listening and being a part of the show. 
Well, it's so funny because I was thinking back about the very first episode and, you know, I remember, you know, I lived in a whole other state. I had a whole other microphone and computer that I was recording with and um, we were talking to Dayton Ward for the first episode because Chris was good friends with Dayton, knew him fairly well and um, we had to read this book and I'd never read any of the series but it's in Tempest Wake, which is the very end of Vanguard, the very the epilogue, basically, for the entire series. And it was just so great because the epilogue was, was a, it's a great book. Um, it's a good conclusion to that series. But it was just so interesting um, to get to talk to Dayton and an author and really kind of set the tone for what the show was going to be, especially when we had an author on, is, is to get that behind the scenes of what is it like to create this um, in this world, you know, what's it like to create a Star Trek book and try to come up with these stories and all that kind of stuff. And then the very next episode being one of my favorite Star Trek books, honestly, was Kirsten Byers, The Eternal Tide. And I loved getting to talk to Kirsten. And honestly, it's funny because when we talked to her, realized with Kirsten, we could probably talk for hours and hours because Kirsten is just one of those people. She knows Voyager like the back of her hand. It is amazing. Um, And she's watched the series so many times and that's what makes her books so good. Um, And the same thing with all the authors, Una McCormick and Mm -hmm. uh, David Mack and, and James Swallow and David R. George III. And um, I mean, all of these people, um, Keith the Candido, they create fantastic works. Greg Cox, if I'm leaving any of the authors out and you're listening, I apologize. It's not on purpose. Um, it's just because we've talked to so many of you. Um, and I, we have loved having all of them on. William Leshner, you know, I mean, the list is kind of endless. Um, and it's really because you guys... Um, the fans got behind the podcast. You had a passion for Star Trek books like we do, and you supported us. You listen, and um, you talk about the books with us on the Babel Conference and with the authors on Twitter and all of those things, and it's made it just such a joy to do. I love getting to have a excuse quote-unquote to have to read these books (laughs) and then get to talk to the authors so to everyone i mean personally i just want to say thank you for helping just support me and my ridiculous compulsion to want to read as many star trek books as i can and get to talk about them um and a special note to any authors that are listening um we so much appreciate you getting behind the show and spending your time with us to talk about your process because honestly it's really what makes this show special is is getting to talk to you guys about your work and um i just i thank you from the bottom of my heart for everyone sticking with us for 100 episodes because i've loved every minute of it here, here. Uh, we really have something special here because without this podcast, a lot of people wouldn't be able to hear the authors in their own words talk about their works and, you know, share that excitement that Matthew, you and I have talking to these authors about, you know, this wonderful bit of entertainment that we get to enjoy every month. You know, every month there's a new Star Trek novel coming out, sometimes two with the ebooks. 
And it's just so great to have this resource. I'm, I'm thinking mostly of when I was listening to it as a fan uh, to kind of share that joy with a wider community. And I think when it really comes down to it, that's what is the most important thing is we're, we're this community of Star Trek uh, literature fans. And, you know, without the internet and, and things like literary treks, you know, a lot of these groups wouldn't get together and, and share their passion. And I'm excited to share it every week uh, with you guys and with Matthew. And we're so, so happy and appreciative that people listen and enjoy this along with us. So thank you so very much. Well, and it's been great to see, you know, um, we had a run of Star Trek books that were hitting the New York Times bestsellers. We've got some great new authors like John Jackson Miller that have joined the fold Mm -hmm. writing books, Tony Daniel, um, you know, so Trek books are really growing, and um, I think that it's just been exciting to be a part of that. Um, and uh, when we we you know look at at these um, you know, I mean, God, Jeff Lang helped me like Data more than I've <laughs> ever liked Data before, and it was all because of his book Immortal Coil, and then um, of course we had the Light Fantastic. Both mm. of those books helped me fall in love with a character that I just really have never liked that much but he wrote the character in such a way that helped change it in my mind I mean that's powerful stuff for an author to take a character that I've been watching for god how many years over 20 some odd years now and yet he tapped into something that made the character just so much better for me and Mm -hmm. I really really think that's great See, and I'm thinking of, uh, for example, Kirsten Beyer. Uh, I, I enjoyed um, Full Circle and Unworthy quite a bit. And then I read Children of the Storm and Voyager. Mm-hmm. Voyager all of a sudden yep. became one of my favorite series, if not at the time, possibly my favorite book series. And that to me is incredible because, you know, years before that, if somebody would have told me that, I'd have never believed them in a million years. And it, that's the power of um, these authors and their words. It's incredible what they can do and the stories they can craft and how they can, you know, access our emotions and get us, make us fall in love with characters we never thought we would or really appreciate series that, you know, we hadn't really given enough of a chance before. And, and I think that's incredible. I mean, when Kirsten Beyer can help you fall in love with Chakotay. Oh, man. <laughs> and and Harry Kim as a character. Yeah. And just anyone on Voyager in general. I mean, what a fantastic work that she has done. And yeah, what I can recommend, hey, you know what? If you want to read a really good Star Trek series, um, re- start with Full Circle by Kirsten Beyer. Mm. You know, just to be able to recommend that that's one of the highlights of Trek Lit is a Voyager book is is really that says it all what these authors can do so yeah spot on Dan I mean it just (laughs) you know another I think the biggest highlight for me had to be this and it was I was we were talking with um, James Swallow about his Titan book the Poison Chalice and um, I love getting to talk to James and, and you guys don't know this um, on the podcast, but James and I almost always end up talking about another 30 or 40 minutes after the <laughs> show's over because we just keep going. Um, and uh, it, 
it's always because there's always so much Star Trek to talk with James and he's such a fan and he's so effervescent in his love for it. So it really is fun. But I remember talking to him and obviously we're talking about the poison chalice and something came up about naming characters after friends and I just was like man I would love to be named after like have something named after me in a Star Trek book he's like well you didn't I named a ship after you I was like what (laughs) he's like yeah I named a ship after you You didn't catch that and I, I hadn't and he had named this Andorian ship after me called the Matt Russ which it was just the biggest highlight for me and actually uh, my brother-in-law and sister gave me a uh, a framed copy of the book cover and then the page with my name on it and everything oh, very um, so cool. it sits over my desk but yeah that that was you n- never would have ever thought possible that I'd be in a Star Trek book like that um mm-hmm. and it was just something special you know um and it meant a lot to me that James did that because he listens to the show mm-hmm. you know he said i was i was writing and i was listening to the show while i was writing and i just i thought it'd be fun to throw matt in there you know that so <laughs> the fact that one of the authors sits down and listens to the show um you know that meant the world to me and um honestly for for all the authors it's you give given us hours of enjoyment and um Sometimes I've appreciated what you did more than they ever did on the shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that says a lot to me about the quality of your work. And, um, well, here's to another hundred and hopefully continuing spreading the passion and the love for Star Trek books and comics um, to as many fans as possible. Here, here. Couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> Well, Dan, I am very excited that we are going to be covering Rising Sun. And I think from the outset, I remember when this book first came out, it's a Jake book. (laughs) And I think everybody immediately would just be, oh, really? Jake? I could probably skip that one, right? It's nuts. You know, I I I don't need to talk or read or anything about that. But this book, I would say, is pivotal to the Deep Space Nine series, especially with wrapping up where they're going to go in Unity, as well as the entire new storyline that they're going to tell once Unity is over um, and, and and really move into that next section, um, especially after the world of Deep Space Nine, you get into the Soul Keys and, and those books, Warpath, all of that. It was setting up a really big storyline that will get finished by David R. George III in his next few books. So um, this really is a book. Is If you're thinking, oh, you're reading the Deep Space Nine relaunch, I can skip Rising Sun. You can't skip this one. Definitely um, not. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's surprisingly surprising. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so... I'm excited that we're finally getting to talk about it because it also means we're so much closer to (laughs) unity and really wrapping up that, as we were saying, that eighth season of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, absolutely. I do remember when this first came out and I was reading the the Deep Space Nine relaunch. And, you know, of course, I'm not going to skip a novel because... 
it's an ongoing story, but I do remember a little bit of trepidation at seeing Jake on the cover. And I mean, there was part of me that was like, oh, I want to see how his trip through the wormhole ends up because basically he disappeared in the first two-part novels, uh, Avatar. Um, And so I was a little curious about that, but at the same time thinking, oh man, a whole book about Jake. And then behind Jake is Kyle Paca, who is one of my absolute favorite characters in the early, well, first season really of Deep Space Nine. And that really made me want to pick up the novel. So I kind of had these two warring sides with that, (laughs) a little bit of apathy and a little bit of, oh, but Kaiopaka. Hmm. So there, you know, it was kind of interesting that dynamic there. It really was. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I do too remember thinking, Kaiopaka, really? Like, (laughs) isn't she on that planet that she can never get away from? I mean, they literally made a whole big point about the fact that, oh no, you, we can't take you from this planet or you're, you're going to die. Um, so yeah, I that was really interesting, and so I think that's a great place maybe to just kind of start as a question. How, what did you think about the explanation for her being able to get off the planet? Well, I think you know, in in any case, you kind of needed a way to get her off the planet, but um, you know, I buy it. I think it was as good an explanation as any. And just the fact that we get her in this story is is worth it all. It's an, actually interesting. While reading this story, I kept waiting for them to get to that planet because I thought that would be kind of how she gets into the story because I wasn't thinking that she would be able to get off the planet. But they surprised me by having her show up at the end, near the end of the book, of course. Um which actually is also kind of interesting. I felt like the way the story was written, they kind of wanted to surprise you with her appearance, but then they made the decision to put her on the cover. So, and I mean, like I said, in my case, it worked because it made me more interested to pick up the book. So, you know, maybe they made the right decision there, but I don't know. It does make me wonder. Yeah. Marketing wise, you know, this, that it, the way it is written, it is written a little bit as a mystery as you meet her in the story, mm-hmm. um, who it is that they're going to talk to. And obviously, you know, because you've seen the cover. Right. And when they get to that point in the story, you're like, oh, this is going to be where they meet Kaiopaka, isn't it? Um. So, yeah, in some ways, I feel like the cover does give away maybe too much of where this storyline is, is going to go and, and how important it's going to be. And that is a little frustrating. Um. Of course... I'm reading it for the second time now, so I already know she's going to be in the book, so it's not mm-hmm. a real frustration. But now that I think back to anybody who's reading it for the first time, that's that's kind of a big thing to give away just on the cover, a really big story point that is written kind of mysteriously, mm-hmm. but it's not mysterious at all. I think I said in my review, and this is definitely overstating the case, but I think I said something along the lines of, it would be like movie posters for Empire Strikes Back saying, the greatest father and son story ever told. <laughs> kind of. Yep. I can see that. It, it's it's the big plot point of the book, and yet at the same time, it's, it's already given to you on the cover. And um, so, yeah, if you were judging this book by its cover, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the one with Kaiopaka and uh, Jake, even if you've never read it. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even though that's a really big story point. So, <laughs> what was really interesting to me in this book was that you know Jake is a character who's only nominally explored in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that was trying to figure out how to fit him in. And even the writers of the books, I think, sometimes have had that issue as well. And I felt like this is a whole book kind of dealing with the the ramifications of what would it be like to be Jake growing up in the shadow of the emissary and the great Starfleet captain, Benjamin Sisko, and be somebody who is not following those footsteps. Because, you know, being in his father's shadow is a big shadow. I mean, mm. it, it's like being a normal guy and walking next to John Wayne. Absolutely, kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and I love that this whole book is Jake trying to figure out who he wants to be and not who he thinks his dad wants him to be. Mm-hmm. I think for the purposes of that story, getting him away from the station and away from you know, all of these main characters who have spent seven years outshining him, basically, you know, was kind of a necessary component of the story. And I think it works really, really well. We don't get a lot of Jake just being Jake without, you know, kind of the other core cast around him. The possible exception of the visitor, I think, and, and, in the cards a little bit, but for the most part, it's still kind of Jake reacting to what's going on around him rather than driving the story himself. So in this case, getting him away from that and getting him away from the the familiar environs and into a new situation where he has to be the driving force, I think was an excellent tack for the story to take. And it's, it's really interesting to see the character kind of have to come face to face with who he is you know as we all do and it both you and I were were men who have had to grow up and have those discussions even just with ourselves of okay who do I want to be what do I want to be like and uh, is it going to be like something that my parents expected uh, my father expected you know those are very big questions that men face you know, if we have grown up with fathers or very strong role models in our lives, um, it also shows how important those are in our lives because they give us that kind of stability. You know, Jake has a good role model to show him what a good man is like. And then Jake has to decide in this book, okay, what kind of man do I want to be like? Um, and do I believe all the things that my father believed? Um, do I, you know, it's very much a very spiritual, it's a very, um, metaphysical journey that he's on of growing into adulthood and choosing the life that he wants to lead and how he wants to lead it. It's a really big, really important part of this book. And I think it's just something that's not done a lot, I think, in, in literature well, you know, mm. uh, of a boy turning into a man and okay what kind of man do I want to be especially when he's had a father like Cisco who could be overshadowing um and you know is a good role model but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be exactly what Jake wants to be so yeah it's really nice 
Yeah, definitely. It's, it's the kind of story. It really spoke to me. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, there've been points in my life when, you know, I thought I had things figured out. Uh, but I think, you know, generally it turns out that I really don't. And I think my life will continue to be interesting because I can't foresee ever really having everything worked out. And seeing Jake kind of work through this and try and figure out the kind of person he is, and like you say, what he believes and how he wants to model his life, uh, it, like I said, it really spoke to me and just kind of had this feeling of um, of reality to me. And I really identified with Jake on his journey in this novel. Well, and you know, what's so interesting is really Jake is trying to decide, okay, how do I live? You know, and he has lived, they call him an Alfie because he's in the Delta <laughs> Quadrant. They call him an Alfie because he's in the Gamma Quadrant and he's grown up in this Starfleet bubble and, you know, he grew up on the station, which means he has a better understanding of the way the universe works outside of Starfleet and the Federation with the Ferengi and all these other people who use money. But, you know, he's still been surrounded by people who are genuinely altruistic. You know, mm. their life is lived for the benefit of others. Right. Instead of the pursuit of gain. I mean, even his best friend Nog, who was a Ferengi, gave that up to become a Starfleet officer. You know, he's seen Rom, you know, take and start to dismantle what it means <laughs> to be, what we think of it meant to be a Ferengi through Deep Space Nine and turn it into something more benevolent like the Federation. Um, so all of these things he's seen in his life and yet being in the Gamma Quadrant, you know, so many millions of light years away from home, He's learning that, you know, life is different for other people. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody lives like I've grown up living and feels like that's the way to live. Um, and is that wrong to live like that in the first place? And two, is it the right life for me? Mm. Is a pirate's life for me? <laughs> That's exactly what was going through my head just there. <laughs> um, yeah, no, like you say, Jake, uh, Jake really is a child of the, you know, Federation 24th century. He's generally very selfless. Um, he's pretty close to Gene Roddenberry's idea of what humans are like in that era. And I thought it was really interesting as he's on the even odds and, and meeting all these people and going through these experiences uh, when you see things through his eyes, he still sees every encounter he has through through that lens, basically, of the Federation's ideals and that sort of thing. And so it's really interesting when we see things from another perspective where people's motivations are a little different. You know, maybe they're, they're more interested in, um, well, self-interest, like you say, and, and profit and, and getting ahead in life and that sort of thing. So when you see things through, for example, the eyes of the captain of the even odds, you know, he sees Jake and all of his count encounters through that prism. And that juxtaposition is really cool. Um, it's kind of, I wouldn't say a clash of worldviews, but it's it's definitely kind of uh, just very different worldviews kind of coming up against one another and, you know, creating a bit of friction there. 
Well, I like that you mentioned, you know, worldviews, because I, I really think that that's, that's something that we all have to face as we grow up. You know, am I going to, to stay with the worldview that I was raised with, or am I going to search for one that I think might be better or, you know, might benefit me more or any of those kind of things? And and so Jake is is really having that, I'd say, really kind of conversion experience in this book of of life, you know. I am going to choose to live in a certain way because I'm making the choice to do it, not because I was raised that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and anybody who has had a, you know, kind of spiritual background and grown up certain way spiritually, you have to come to a point in your life where you say, okay, I believe this for me, not because my parents believed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm choosing it for me or I'm choosing something different. Um, and it is about that idea of of how I see the world, you know, and Jake really has his worldview tested. And in the end, Jake comes to accept that who he is and what he's believed all of his life is how he wants to live the rest of his life. Mm. But it's because it's been tested, it's been tried, and he hasn't found it wanting. In fact, he's found the other side of life to be wanting. And I really think that that's an interesting thing because... In the end, you know, the way Jake wants to live is for the benefit of others and not just for selfish gain, you know, and it's very much that kind of Jake wants to be somebody who kind of lives by the golden rule, you know, do unto others. And um, because that's very much how the Federation is in Mm -hmm. general. That's that's kind of uh, what they're like we are going to share yeah. with everyone we we want to treat others the way we want to be treated which is with respect and honor and dignity and um and so i think it's really nice to see that in this book because it's an important thing because everybody in their life should come to that point where they make the decision of you know how their life should be lived and not just that but it's very important because one should think deeply about how one lives. And mm. if you're not, then like Jake, maybe you need a little bit of time to to go on some kind of quest to figure that out, you know? <laughs> right. You don't you don't just want to inherit a belief system or a way of life. Like you say, you know, Jake's way of life and worldview is tested here and uh and yeah, I think that is very important and I think it's there's there's kind of a danger of stagnation if you just accept everything that you grew up with without kind of testing the limits of it or you know seeing what else there is out there and yeah, the fact that it goes through this test and comes out the other side with Jake still wanting to like you say, live by that golden rule, which is kind of the underpinning of what the Federation is all about and why it was founded and, and what its members tend to believe. Uh, it really shows that that is a good way to live um, as for Jake, maybe not for other people, but for Jake, that's how he wants to live his life rather than just inheriting that from his father and saying, yeah, okay, I'll do this because it's what I'm used to. He's really discovered that is who he is not just what he does yeah it's it's a really i think pivotal part of the book and just an important thing for all of us to think about even 
and like you said, we're we don't always have it figured out. We'll never have it all figured out. And therefore life <laughs> Yeah. Is a series of studying, learning, growing, changing, um, and and continuing to refine who we are and who we want to be. Um, because I think, you know, the question that we ask ourselves, there's a there's a great switchfoot song, Are You Who You Wanna Be? you know, mm, is yeah. one of the lyrics, you know, and I think that's a great question because, you know, I mean, when I ask myself that question, um, I'm not who I want to be, you know, and if I ever say yes, then that's probably not really who I want to be. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. You know, and I want to be love... the person who always wonders what he wants to be. <laughs> yeah, almost, you know, yeah. um, but but at the same time, I think the great thing about Jake is that he tries his worldview he doesn't find it wanting and he finds a, a way to move forward. And then, and then same time, you know, yes, we should question our beliefs. We should question um, the way we want to live. We should question who we want to be, but then we should be confident to go boldly in the pursuit of our dreams. Um, that's a quote from somewhere kind of, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I paraphrased from somebody. Um, I'm really not that eloquent. So yeah, I think it's a really, really great part of this book and I, I love that it was there um, because it flows really into a lot of other big questions of free will predestination and responsibility when it comes to this idea that there are bigger powers at work such as something like the prophets who are all seeing and know a lot um, whether or not the prophets know everything is into question because they didn't know what corporeal life forms were mm-hmm. um, or what corporeal life was, but they do seem to at least have the ability to access pretty quickly what whatever is. So they're at least very, 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 very powerful and nigh omniscient, if I'd not have so. the ability <laughs> to at least be close to omniscient. So... Yeah, how do we live life if if everything is just predestined? Do we actually do anything at that point? Do we do nothing? Um, that's a huge question. And what is our responsibility with what we do with our actions? Huge, huge questions. Oh, absolutely. Now, I love uh, discussions about free will and, and predestination. Now, with the prophets and in Star Trek, is it really if you think about it, is it really destiny or predestination or because you're dealing with beings who live outside of time and time and have seen it all, so to speak, those words kind of have a bit of a different meaning. Um, So for example, was Jake always meant to do what he did or is it just, that's what he did do and the prophets happened to see it. So was it his destiny or was it just what he did and the prophets, well, that's what he did, so. Or is it both? Is it destiny and what he did? <laughs> and I, th- I think that's the biggest question yeah. when, you, when you're when you asking this. And, and if the being is powerful enough, then um, it's probably more both. Mm-hmm. And that seems like an oxymoron, but when you're outside of time and space and you have some influence over it, don't really think that's too hard that it can be both. Um, mm-hmm. But that also means that there is a responsibility then that we have in our actions and what we do um, and how we live our lives. 
um, in response to others and just ourselves. So, yeah, again, huge, I mean, life-altering questions that Mm -hmm. nobody stops asking ever. Um, And, you know, we we kind of come, I think, most of us to a comfort level somewhere along the way in that. But it's definitely something that's always in the back of our minds, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was kind of thinking about this. And it becomes a lot more complicated and I think feeds into your answer of both uh, when you think about why did Jake go into the wormhole? Did he go into the wormhole because he always did and the prophets just saw that? Or did the prophets writing it down or influencing someone to write it down make him go into the wormhole? So... (laughs) It gets really confusing when you start following all of the all of the ends of the the discussions there, and it kind of well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us mere mortals, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I think it really it does a great job of representing um, how limited we are in scope, mm-hmm. you know, and and really honestly, our brains when we start to say like both. It's really hard for us to even start to think about that in the first place. I think that limitation of what we as humans can really understand and comprehend should make us humble enough to say, I probably don't completely ever really know. And Mm -hmm. maybe that means that I should be more comfortable with there being a whole other side of life that um, I'm... I. I'll never really necessarily have all that much control over. <laughs> um, so yeah, I it's a I, again. I just I love that Deep Space Nine really talks about these metaphysical issues in life because they are important. Um, and you know, Star Trek shied away from that for the longest time, or gave us kind of cheap answers to what the metaphysical was. You know, it was always some cheap parlor trip by some kind of more advanced alien. But in Deep Space Nine, it's much bigger than that. And I think that's more representational of what we even just see in our own, you know, planet here. That there's 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 a lot of stuff that nobody's ever going to be able to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, just popping back for a second to the uh, free will and predestination discussion just because i love these discussions like this i could be a real jerk here now and throw in the monkey (laughs) wrench of alternate quantum realities like in the episode parallels so every decision that you can make is made but in a different quantum reality so that really calls into question the destiny thing too (laughs) so yeah i don't don't really have an answer for you and um i mean which i think is valid and legitimate yeah, too i don't I think, think we should have uh, answers to all this yeah but we shouldn't stop trying until we to can find start, the answers either yeah it, it, and still until we can start hopping you know parallel universes i don't even know so that's a <laughs> i mean again it, it it really just shows you just how small and finite i think we are as human beings in general and in, in even the things that we can think up just make our minds hurt even worse. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it 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 shows that there's always going to be questions, and there might not always really be answers, especially mm-hmm. while we're alive, because we don't even live that long. So, yeah. um, and that's a that can be a crushing thing, 
or it can be a freeing thing as you try to find something that answers those questions best mm. for you and makes the most sense, the most logical sense. And I think that's where like what we can see, at least in Deep Space Nine, that these characters, someone like Kira or Kaiopaka or so or even Cisco, you know, when it comes down to the idea of faith for them, it's not unreasoned. It's not, you know, um, it's not illogical for them to then put their faith in something, you mm-hmm. know, like the prophets. And uh, I really like that because, um, you know, I think it, it does an, a nice job of reflecting um, people of faith that we don't ex- just accept things blindly. It takes a lot of thought process to be like, okay, I'm going to put my belief in that. Yeah, for me, you know, things like this, and I mean, you know, it is, we're, we're talking about a fictional thing here too, of yeah. course. <laughs> we are but, just talking about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but the kind of discussions and thoughts that it engenders really make me, you know, what they do for me is is kind of make me want to learn more and, and try and figure that out. And I mean, you know, you won't always come up with the right answer or even an answer. And I'm really thinking of, um, now I might be really messing this up, but I'm thinking, I think it's Plato who talks about the world we see is kind of a shadow on the wall of a cave. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think yeah. that's Plato. It's Plato. Uh, yeah. And, uh, because you know, all we see are the, uh, we just see the, f- uh, the things that reflect the actual form that's out there. Right. You know, the, 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 a chair there is a perfect essence of a chair and what we see is only a representation of that perfect form that's mm-hmm. somewhere out there. And I think that's really fascinating because science of course has since discovered that you know the visible light spectrum is is just a tiny bit of the information that's actually there just as one example. So, you know, he really kind of had a grasp on the reality of it that you know, what we see and what we can observe in the world around us is, you know, just a mere fraction of, of what is actually there. And I don't know, I just, I, I love discussions like this because it makes me want to learn more about what it is that we don't know or can't see. Well, and I think, you know, that is such a great representation of the limitations of science then in the end. Because science is all about what we can observe, you know, and what we can see and what we can experiment on. But if there's all of this out there that we may never be able to see or detect or anything like that, it means everything that we know is really limited Um, and will be limited for how, I mean, just, it will always be limited because there's always going to be something we probably can't detect or completely understand, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Mm -hmm. That is mind boggling, you know? Yeah. And like you say, a lot of people might find that kind of crushing or disappointing, but to me, it just means that there's always more out there to learn and discover. And that to me is the most wonderful thing. I think that's great. I, I would mourn a world where we had figured everything out or thought we had the answers to everything. But the world in which there is infinite things to discover and learn, that's the world that I am really glad that I live in. And I think that's really the world represented by Star Trek as well. Well, and 
I think that really leads to that question that's in this book as well is like, what is our purpose then? What is the purpose of life? And, and, um, Jake is, is dealing with this as are some of the characters that, that we find on the even odds of, of, you know, what really is our purpose? What's our motivation for basically getting up every morning and doing what we do and why we do it? Um, and it was interesting to, to read this book because this week um, at work, we watched a TED conference and the gentleman was talking about that in the end, it's the why, the, the why we do things. That's the main question for everything, whether it's business or anything else. Why do we do it? Because that's what drives the passion and, and the heart and the soul of everything it is that we do. And so always starting with that question of the why. And this book does a great job of, of just, I think, touching on that fact of, okay, why do we do what we do? in life mm-hmm. what's the purpose of life and answering that question goes along with what we think about free will destination responsibility how we live in relation to others all of these things are connection what we believe about a higher power or not i mean all of it is is the i mean the totality of what it means to to live a well-reasoned well-thought-out uh, well-examined life and mm-hmm. all in a star trek book well i mean it's it's like i've said uh anything that can engender this kind of deep passionate discussion um is a really great thing and if that thing's a star trek novel then all the better for sure um as far as the 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 why we um the why of what we do you know that that really kind of got me to thinking about jake again and you know, why he went into the wormhole and why he set out on this journey. And in the end, I mean, maybe he feels some disappointment that he didn't bring his father home, but he set in motion events that will eventually possibly, spoiler alert, lead to that. (laughs) And, you know, it's really interesting. If Jake knew that this would be the end of his journey, would he have taken it in the first place, for example? So... You know, the reasons we do things, you know, might influence whether or not we do them, but the outcome actually could be something completely different and lead to something that we never even possibly imagined. And I think sometimes when you have, you know, a specific goal in mind, it can kind of be the ruin of it if you, you know, don't think that you're going to achieve that goal, but you might actually achieve something else that can be probably possibly even more wonderful than what you thought. So I, I just kind of got me to thinking about Jake's motivations and how he feels at the end of this book about, you know, what he's accomplished and what he didn't accomplish. Well, one thing that um, this book does is really lay all the seeds for where the Deep Space Nine story is going to head next. And it's going to take a little bit to get there, but I mean, we drop in the Ascendance and we drop in the Evoc and all of the things that are really going to start to encapsulate the Deep Space Nine story. And then, of course, are going to leave a gaping hole in for a while until this year when David R. George III starts to fill in that gap finally. And I think that that was, it was just interesting how 
like all good storytelling, you're telling one story, but you're setting up, if you're doing a serialized series, other things. And even though this book feels very much like you get some good resolution, but it's also heading right into Unity, um, it does a great job, I think, of, of putting all those things in there organically to where you're interested. Okay, well, I'd love to hear more about these, you know, religious zealot ascendants and, um, you know, this planet that's linked with Bajor and they worship, um, well, kind of worship the, what they call the siblings, not the prophets, but they're the same beings of the wormhole and all very interesting stuff that I'm like, oh, I just can't wait to get more of that. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's a lot of seeds of uh, future stories being set up here and, um, well, first of all, I love how this story was first introduced at the end of Mission Gamma, how we kind of get the end of this story. And then this novel kind of goes back and says, okay, well, this is how Jake got there. And, you know, now at the end of this story, everyone's caught up. We're all where we're supposed to be to kind of take the leap into this um, final chapter of season eight. And yeah, there's there's a lot here. And it's very clear that, you know, Uh, Marco Palmieri, the editor at the time, really kind of took a leading role in establishing a lot of what this story is going to look like going forward from here. And it it is unfortunate there was that shakeup and we kind of lose that middle section of story uh, coming up. But uh, like you said, it looks like we're going to get to that point kind of just as David R. George comes in to fill in that gap. So I'm really excited about that. Well, wrapping up just kind of your final thoughts and and rating for Rising Sun. Well, there's actually a lot we didn't even talk about with this novel that really made me fall in love with it. Um, A lot of these characters, these secondary characters that are introduced in this novel, uh, uh, the author, S.D. Perry, is really able to give these characters a lot of life and Uh, That was one of the things that I really, really loved about this novel. I'm thinking especially about, um, I'm not going to try and attempt to pronounce the full name, but Stessy, who is this very, very alien creature. And yet, you know, when she dies, it's really emotional. And it's really amazing that this novel is able to wring that emotion out of me, out of a character that I only met a few pages earlier, basically. (laughs) And Jake's story and the questions that it raises and the thoughts that it left with me for hours after I'd put the book down. I, I absolutely love this novel. Uh, I think it's one of the highlights of the entire deep space nine relaunch. And if I were to give it a rating, I would have to say that it is, Five out of five transported star systems. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, for me, this book does have a few issues. The beginning of the book, there is some issues for me that there's a lot of showing, not telling in the book, um, which sounds weird for a book, but I'll put it this way. There's a lot of times in the, in the beginning where we, we just hear them say why the characters like Jake instead of giving us the adventure that helps us understand why they like Jake. 
and I think that's a cheat for a book. It's it's not good writing to do that, and so that was a little bit frustrating. But about a little bit more than midway through the book, when we get to Opaka, the book completely shifts for me. Um, and so I just wish that kind of thing had happened sooner in the book because the beginning is a little bit weak on for me. Mm. But it's the ending that really uh, just takes the rating that would have been very low if the whole book had been like the beginning and really shoots it, uh, you know, that score way up. So um, for me, it is, it's, I'd say three and a half out of five Wexes just because I really liked that character and we don't get enough of it in the book. I really would have loved to have seen more. So definitely. um, Yeah. But this is definitely don't take that in any way as a book that um, should not be read because this book should be read and it's, it's very good and it's, it's really, I really, really enjoy this, uh, this story in the end and I'm excited um, after it to see where it's going to go next. So yeah, this is definitely a book in the Deep Space Nine canon. Um, even if you see Jake on the cover, um, <laughs> I think it deserves to be read. Definitely. Well, Matthew, this has been a really, really great and um, um, unexpectedly deep conversation about uh, Rising Sun, uh, which is one of my favorite novels uh, in the Star Trek uh, lit verse. So. This was a especially fun conversation for me. Well, I'm really glad that that we're at this point. I'm just so excited that soon we are going to be covering Unity. I, you know, I've just been waiting to kind of get to this point, and it's exciting that it, it's almost here. And the fact that we've gotten this far in the Deep Space Nine relaunch, and it's just an exciting place to be. Um, but, of course, Rising Sun is not the only thing that we have been talking about on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without without him and his hand guiding all of this, then, then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was and if it had not been successful then it, it you know it probably would have meant the end of star trek at that point earl gray like i'm expecting ricardo martivan to like walk around the corner and be like captain picard welcome this is rise of five the shuttlecraft the shuttlecraft the orb curzon is involved with the kittimer yep. cords Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about, so you would think they would have run into each other They probably hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! (laughs) The ready room. The movie series would not have relaunched and, and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of... The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, The Best of Both Worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek Stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, I've always liked the... Uh, I like that episode for... I mean, it's one of the most derided 
of the of the original series episodes. But yet, I always it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The Six O Two Club. Like I, I could kind of dismiss Droids in Distress and Fight or Flight and everything like that, and I was just kind of watching the background. But all of a sudden, I started catching myself like stopping working and just focusing on watching and uh, and so it just got better and better and better and i think i was hooked by episode four breaking rings that's when i was like okay i like this show this is good warp five in the history of axanar alec peters and christian gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the arcanus campaign and in the arcanus campaign a majority of starfleet ships were destroyed and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You know you will find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a real passion for the Star Trek books and comics like we do and would just love to be able to share these with others, you can do a few things to help us do that. One of them is you're really the best person to share this show with others, whether it's on your Facebook or your Twitter um, you talking about the show or telling others to listen, that's one of the best ways to do that. Of course, you can also do it by giving us iTunes reviews and star ratings, which really help people find our shows when they search for us in that platform, or hitting the subscribe button. And of course, if you're not an Apple user, you can find our shows as well. You can find the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file and grab the RSS link as well. And of course, give us reviews on those platforms too to help other people be able to find us. If you would like to help us keep Literary Treks and the other shows from the network coming, spreading that passion for Star Trek podcasts and beyond, you can do that by joining us on Patreon.com. Just go to Patreon.com slash TrekFM and you'll find all the current goals and milestone contribution levels that we have for helping keep the network running. We are a listener-supported network and we really appreciate all the support you can give us. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you would like to interact with us, one of the best places to do that is at trek.fm slash contact. You can also leave us a voicemail. We'd love to have that and hear about your passion for Star Trek books. What have been some of your favorite things that we've covered over the last hundred episodes of Literary Treks? Look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com. You can also interact with us on Twitter at trek.fm. And, of course, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And one of the best ways to interact is on the Babel Conference. And that's our listeners' discussion group. Just type the Babel Conference in Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. We'd like to thank our associate producers who have a passion for Star Trek books and help keep this show coming to you each week. One is Will Wynn. He, of course, he's at the Babel Conference. He's also on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn. And he's also the associate producer of Orb and Earl Grey and Trek FM's content coordinator. And, of course, Ken Tripp. You can find him on the Babel Conference as well as supporting the network as an associate producer here on Literary Treks. Now, Dan, when you're not trying to find your way back into the Celestial Temple to find your long-lost father, where can we find you? Well, Matthew, uh, my website is www.treklet.com, and there you'll find reviews of Star Trek novels, both old and new. 
Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash treklitreviews and on Twitter at treklitreviews and at kertrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And that's kind of my personal Twitter. Uh, You'll find Instagram pictures of food and whatever else people put on Twitter all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And Matthew, when you're not making your way through the Gamma Quadrant, trying to find your personal fortune, uh, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushingU02. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. Um, You can also find me doing the 602 club where we're talking about just a great new geeky talk each week it's really just a place for us to kick back as the hosts from the network and friends from around the web and just talk about some of our our favorite geek topics just passionately and honestly and, and with a lot of fun and respect and of course you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42alifeinbetween.wordpress.com well thank you so much for joining us and until next time Live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.